Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the 162nd edition of the Frank and Stan chat. And for those of you watching on video, you'll see that there is a colleague at the bottom of our screen, and this is Alwyn Pugh. Hello, Alwyn. Hello. Hello. Uh, I've known Alwyn, uh, I think the first time I met Alwyn was in 1999, when I think he visited uh, the primary school I was head teacher of. Uh, as we were going for the school's curriculum award. Um, and uh, that led to a, a nice visit down to the Barbican in London to receive the award. But it was a quite a significant thing for our school because it sort of made us really reflect on the place of the curriculum, the, pl the place, the, the town where we were and how we were bringing all of that into the curriculum. So I've known Alwyn since then. Um, it's great to have you. I can't wait to hear you know, the sort of things you're going to cover. But hello, Stan, you've not been well this week, have you? I've oh, been, been uh, uh, under the weather, driven by, uh, I would call it, grandchild-transmitted virus. Uh, <laughs> the GTV. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not sure where he got it from, but he has just started nursery, so that might well be the, yeah. the case. He recovered within 24 hours. <laughs> it's <laughs> taken me three days. It's taken Jill um, three days. And his, his dad, three days. Do you want to put on record, though, here, Stan, that actually you are a good nurse and that Jill actually had breakfast? And did it have a vase with a flower on no, the tray? I don't want to go down that, that <laughs> road, Frank. <laughs> I don't think I'm quite that good. <laughs> uh, Alwyn, uh, do you want to just introduce yourself? Because I'm sure there are one or two people who are uh, not quite sure who you are. They might have seen you or met you be over in your career, but just give us a little summary of what you've done in your life. Right, I'm Eilwyn, although other people will call me Ilwyn, Elwyn, Olwyn, or any other version, and that's just to my face. Um, I uh, started uh, teaching in Magdalen College School in Oxford, uh, and then after five years of uh, teaching music and English there, I went and did some research in the psychology of music. Uh, then I taught in um, primary and secondary schools, including, uh, at that time, the largest uh, comprehensive in the country, 12-form entry with over 2,000 pupils. Um, I then went on into uh, teacher education uh, at Sunderland, what, what is now University of Sunderland, uh, where I was a senior lecturer, uh, coordinator for the creative arts, CPD, anything else they could ask me to do for no extra money. Um, <laughs> then I moved to work uh, for Liverpool LEA. And again, I did vast numbers of various jobs while I was there. But I first went there as a music advisor and um, school improvement officer uh, and had to reapply for my job about seven times, not because I was particularly bad, but because uh, the authority was going through all kinds of turmoil at the time. Uh, during that time, uh, Ofsted was established and I was in the first tranche of Reggie's uh, doing my first inspection in 1993. And um, I then in 2001 became HMI and was there till uh, 2010. So I uh, have worked all that time. Was it 2010 or 2020? Uh, 2020, big year. Yes, yeah. Maths is not my strong point. <laughs> uh, and uh, to keep myself sane, I used to write articles and uh, publish five books and uh, 
poetry in in Welsh and uh, articles in Welsh and English and, and so on. I retired after 49 and a half years of work and people said, what are you going to do next? And I thought, well, having done that much, I don't think I need to do any more. Uh, I have been learning German. I do a little bit of uh, writing uh, and um, I I play the piano and the violin and so on, but but no longer in anger. I just play <laughs> for my own uh, entertainment and I play uh, very occasionally play the organ uh, for weddings and funerals, same pieces, fast for weddings, slow for funerals. <laughs> Well, that's me. Do you know, uh, it's funny because this today that uh, I mentioned before that uh, I have a comment in the uh, I think it's the Times Educational Supplement about the proportion of uh, HMI who were head teachers, and uh, it's currently I think sixty percent. But actually, you've you've sort of run right through that sort of attack on that sort of position because what, what you you clearly weren't a head teacher, but no. what you brought and what you brought to inspection and what you brought to HMI, there's that vast wealth of understanding about the education system more broadly. Mm. So, um, and for those who are coming through as head teachers who perhaps, you know, got been in a school, perhaps a couple of schools, you know, they then come in, want to be a an inspector. That's quite a narrow range of experiences, isn't it? Mm. You know, when you when yeah. you're actually inspecting in an area that you're not familiar with, in a setting that's perhaps might be socially challenging, more challenging than you've ever seen, to actually sort of be expected to make some judgments about effectiveness against that, I'm, I'm confident, Alwyn, that I'm not saying you'd get the judgments right, but I think there's a fair chance you'll be more right, perhaps, mm. than the other person with the very narrow range of experience. Mm. Yeah, I think that the, the, uh, obviously there is a need for leaders, but I think that... Um, when I first joined HMI, certainly there were people from a very, very wide range of backgrounds, uh, and it was it it was very exciting to be in a meeting with these, especially if, if you were doing a large inspection of a local authority or whatever, um, to be able to hear all these various perspectives. Uh, I think there is a danger um, that if you just have it from one aspect, you don't have you you have people who will have been used to doing what's required of them and haven't really thought through. Uh, and I think what Ofsted certainly, well, what HMI certainly used to consist of was a lot of thinkers. Mm. I'm not quite sure that it's, it's there to the same extent. <laughs> yeah. Or certainly, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong, you weren't, you weren't rewarded for thinking. <laughs> Nobody encouraged it. <laughs> but you, you could do it without being sacked. <laughs> Uh, uh, Stan, um, what's caught your eye this week? Uh, well, uh, having been in bed for most of the week, uh, not a lot, but I, I, I did manage to pick up um, a new way of, of organising government, I think, um, on, was it yesterday, the day before, when the Prime Minister announced a, a whole lot of things that he was going to stop that had never actually started, uh, like meat meat tax and the number of people you had to have in your car and seven bins or was it eight bins things that never were going to happen but suddenly by stopping them that's that's been a good thing and made us all slightly better off and i just wondered if the if the working group who are looking to reduce teacher workload 
operate on that same process, there's lots of things that they could stop happening that never really happened to create some space in the curriculum. And, and I was just musing through a list of things that, that people had proposed never be, to become serious, but you know, in the same vein, neither was meat tax, to be honest. So we could we could perhaps start to say, you know, if we if we stop bubble wrap studies, which is where children are encouraged to develop their fine motor skills by popping bubble wrap, um, there's some time in reception. We could take out ancient Greek in the early years. Yeah. That would <laughs> gather some time. Chewing gum language, believing that chewing gum can enhance your, your language development. So you chew as you learn to speak. Um, balloon animal history. I'm not going into the details <laughs> of that. Invisible art class, where you use purely your imagination to develop a piece of art that no one else can see. Uh, that sounds like the kind of artwork I did. <laughs> uh, but if we if we take these things, cloud whispering, as, as another one, uh, superhero ethics, uh, banana peel botany, there's quite a few here that are bizarre things that people propose should be happening in schools that clearly never would. But if you <laughs> take those out, having never introduced them, you can create probably, I would say, 20 to 30 percent of teachers' time. <laughs> Job done. Where where are we where we invent things that didn't happen or were never going to happen? Say I've stopped them happening and therefore saved you some time or money. Yeah. It's absolutely bizarre. Yeah. I agree. Um, I think what's interesting, it, it, at last we've seen on the, I, I felt as though uh, I didn't feel any any pity for the Prime Minister yesterday being interviewed by uh, Radio 4 in, in 10 Downing Street, but actually they didn't really go for him, you know, over all of this, you know, that level of challenge. Um, but it's funny, just bringing it back to education and the point you were making before, Alwyn, about thinking, that actually when... When I worked with, when we worked as HMI in the early days, there was an encouragement to be really quite robust in terms of the challenge to the chief inspector. And that being viewed not negatively, but as a means of ensuring that whatever policy or, or approach was being adopted, actually you'd had your um, Radio 4 interview, you know, prior to the launch, you know, because what you don't want is everybody to keep quiet and then everybody know that something's got a massive problem with it. And then as soon as you launch it, it's out in the open because it's obvious. Um, so I think it's really just that encouragement um, to get people to think that they can just say what's on their mind, not not to knock you down, but to actually improve, improve the process. Um, the thing we could do, Frank, is bring things back. You know, do you remember ITA? Is that is that in your? You must be yeah. old enough. Yeah, I am old ITA. enough. We could bring ITA back for a short period and then get rid of it. Yeah, and, and create a space <laughs> that, that previously wasn't there. <laughs> it's it's the old assembly story, isn't it? Where the the family are overcrowded and they bring an an animal each day into the house, and then eventually they let the animals out of the house and they realise how much space they've got in the house. <laughs> Alwyn, what's caught your eye this week? Well, uh, a quotation from uh, an American zoologist of the 19th century. And he said, education today must see clearly the dual objectives, education for living and education for making a living. 
And I was reflecting on the shift of emphasis that happened during my lifetime as far as these two aims are concerned. Thinking back to the period um, before the national curriculum uh, came, uh, and that was really uh, a culmination of thinking that had been happening for, for a previous 15 years, particularly in this country, in the USA. And the focus was on what makes an educated person, what you need to study to do that. And um, knowledge was analyzed into into discrete bodies of uh, skills and um, concepts, which were then to be the basis of a common curriculum. Now, very, very soon, the common curriculum in this country became compulsory. Curriculum, and I was at a meeting in London when it was announced, and there was tremendous disgust on the part of HMI at that particular time, um, when it, it was just more or less announced out of the blue. Now, the national curriculum, I think, uh, uh, began to go wrong very early on, uh, basically because it was inter- interference from government ministers and civil servants. And then there was a decision later on that some schools, like academies, didn't have to adhere to it. Uh, Ofsted took his eye off the ball. Uh, inspectors were recruit, recruited for leadership experience rather than their knowledge of subjects. Uh, schools eventually became judged on the basis of two subjects. Uh, there was a valiant attempt in 2019 to address or to redress the balance but it was doomed to failure because by that stage, Ofsted had lost its expertise uh, and expertise had been lost in schools. Meanwhile, I think there's been an increasing uh, emphasis on the Victorian notion of education as a means of ensuring wealth. This is why we're still obsessed uh, with uh, the quality of writing in schools. People were taught to write in copper plate so that their masters could be sure they weren't being diddled. Uh, and we still have that notion in the nonsense that we uh, focus so much on uh, on that uh, in, in the writing in schools rather than on its content. So there was that uh, increasing emphasis, and I think probably the decline started with uh, Ronald Reagan when he said, why should we subsidise intellectual curiosity? I think it continues with the present um, Prime Minister uh, on with his um, focus on differentiating between subjects on their basis of their potential contribution to the economy, and suddenly students are being frowned on uh, if they wish to study English literature and the arts and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, and in schools, I think decisions are being made on what is regarded as being economically advantageous to people. And what worries me is that sometimes those are made without, uh, with the thin veneer of thinking this is going to be good for children who come from poor backgrounds and uh, they need to be able to get out of that. Yes, it's true, but it doesn't take into consideration what happens in our minds. It's one thing to earn money uh, what is happening in your mind during that time. And I was thinking of a time when I went into a, a school and uh, in, in a very poor area, a large secondary school, and uh, in assembly, uh, somebody put on a recording of Allegri's Miserere 
the kids were absolutely enthralled. You know, people used to talk at that time about awe and wonder. That's the only time I saw it. But actually, it was very, very real. You know, you could have heard a pin drop. These children were absolutely gobsmacked by it. And suddenly, the deputy head marched to the front, didn't even phase the music out, just turned it off and said to them, but you won't be interested in that. So <laughs> when I spoke to her afterwards, I said, why did you do that? Uh, well, she said, because it won't, they won't be interested. I said, that isn't what I, I felt. She said, well, look, look where they come from. So she piped to the window and you could see council housing. Um, so I said to her, well, um, uh, do those council houses have internal loos? Yes, of course. Do they have bathrooms? Yes, of course. Well, it's more than I ever had as a, as, as a child. And I'm glad that I wasn't subjected to this kind of preconception. Uh, uh, another anecdote, so I won't hold you too much, but uh, my mother worked as a cleaner in a factory. She used to love going to concerts, theatres, um, art galleries and so on. And she always used to say, I, this is wonderful because next week when I'm pushing a mop around, I can remember all these wonderful <laughs> things. So there, it's important. That, and I also had an English teacher who made us learn reams and reams of poetry because he was quite convinced we were going to end up in prison. Two of us did. Uh, I haven't checked with them to see uh, whether this was any, uh, of any relevance, but he, as a POW in the First World War, had, had kept himself going by remembering all this poetry. So um, I think it's important that we remember the inner mind as well as uh, the economic uh, imperative. And in, when I was a student way back in the 60s, um, the expectation was that in our lifetime, somehow we would be released from having to do daily grind and we would be able to sit back and uh, and continue from the, from the summer of love. Well, it never happened or it didn't happen to me. Uh, and uh, But now we might be nearer that state of affairs. You know, people worry about AI. Uh, um, I don't because I wouldn't have understood it anyway. Um, but we'll find ways of living uh, with it. Uh, people have adapted to such a great deal uh, and that therefore probably will mean that we'll get to the point where more and more people uh, will have more and more time for themselves. And um, another quote I found this week by a chap called Sidney J. Harris was that the primary purpose of a liberal education is to make one's mind a pleasant place in which to spend one's leisure. And I think we ought to uh, keep that yeah. in mind and not lose sight of it just because we're bound to uh, UK PLC. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, go on, Stan, you were going to say. I was just going to say, in my first school, my, uh, which was in a council estate in Salford, the head teacher said to me that all these children need is to be able to fill in a betting slip and read the back page of The Sun. Mm. That was her ambition for, for the children in. Yeah. It's only we, I was part of the generation, uh, the, in terms of social mobility, I think, I, I, I think it was a, a, a period of, uh, I don't know how it happened, but I, I was able to get up the social ladder. And uh, there's, there was a report out a couple of weeks ago um, saying, why has social mobility stalled? And it's, and they, they were drawing attention to the fact that it's not about your earnings uh, you, you, your earnings in themselves you know uh, uh, 
most people's earnings are not keeping up with inflation. You know, so in a way, everyone's getting poorer if if all of your wealth is based on earnings. But if you're the landed gentry, if you have property in certain parts of the country, you will be wealthy for your you will be well off for your entire lifetime. And because of inheritance and and little attention on inheritance tax, your children are likely to benefit. So this idea of social mobility, this idea that education in itself can climb you out of that of get you out of of you know it can it can bring some so some economic benefit but actually the the strength of education if it is so difficult because of taxation whatever the the thing that needs to be stressed is its its personal impact on you as an individual you know the economic element of it yes okay but actually it doesn't i, I feel as though in my generation we i think hard work doing you know having the right attitude there were opportunities that became available to us which weren't available to my parents but mm. i'm not sure i'm seeing that level of social mobility out there now in the same to the same degree and i think that that report when you were talking about it i i was reminded of that report and some things are outside of our control here like mm. the government's taxation policy but anyway go on Stan. No, I was just think, thinking about the, the curriculum and, and how government policy as you know, if we're trying to use it to generate economy, music is <laughs> one of the things that generates a lot of income for the yeah. you know, and the creative arts. And yet, in my view, one person decided that music wasn't worth anything, didn't include it in a baccalaureate, didn't think it was um, an academic, sufficiently academic subject to uh, to to be a major subject in schools and ineffectively almost within a term destroyed music and i noticed the hmi report that's just come out now has virtually said we haven't changed since, since no. point. and the point alwyn made about basically we're teaching two subjects yeah that's certainly, <laughs> that's certainly the case in primary schools and, <laughs> and having grandchildren now you see and and being close to those grandchildren um the the the, the the narrowness of it the the lack in effect their only bit of drama and music came after the saps had been completed mm. when there was yeah. a joyous celebration mm. when you suddenly saw kids who could hold an audience and you're mm. thinking well where did you get that ability well it was from a a club that she joined three or four mm. years ago her parents had provided that it wasn't the school mm. and actually you think well what about all those other children whose parents didn't provide that or can't provide that you know i mean how, how do you how do you feel alwyn then when when you've inspected mm -hmm. i remember an hmi saying to me a curriculum can't be a good curriculum if it doesn't teach geography and there were many there must be many schools primary schools where you see pretty thin levels of understanding around geography mm -hmm. but how, how how do you manage to get that, how do you evaluate the effectiveness of that curriculum, that experience for young people, when it is so narrow on just maths and English? Well, I think it, it takes us to what um, <coughs> our colleague has been talking about in terms of, of, of um, deep dives. Um, the problem uh, with those is, first of all, people have only been trained in some areas. Uh, so it's, it doesn't surprise me that his, so many people uh, are looking at history because that's where it started from. 
as it were, <laughs> in terms of the, the history of the training. Um, my colleagues, uh, they, they did try to introduce music uh, and they used to put it on the agenda for a training. Uh, but while I was still in Ofsted, they never once got round to that. And colleagues used to sidle up to me and say, well, we won't get to that today because you're here. Because they knew I would challenge and, uh, and, and cause a problem. I don't think we actually have got to a situation or well, certainly by the time I'd, I'd finished uh, um, three years ago, we'd got to a situation where we could really assess uh, what was happening in, in terms of the curriculum. And I I don't know, but I don't hold much out much hope that people will uh, will really focus on a, on a broad curriculum in the future yeah. either. Yeah. Well, for me, and it's, I know it's, there's loads of arguments against this, but if, if what you judge children on at the age of 16 is what they can remember uh, in a certain number of subjects the whole of the curriculum is going to be about trying to get them to that point Mm. rather Mm. than judging what they're capable of doing at that stage and and what the range of of knowledge and understanding Mm. understanding see that's that's not used very often now I notice Mm. we're on knowledge but we're not on understanding Mm. uh, and and concepts which uh, Again, I don't see that in anything I read at the moment. Uh, that conceptual thinking. It, well, somebody would have made a decision somewhere that some words are forbidden, and uh, and that I found that very very frustrating. I, th- I thought it was ironic that we were trying to develop the vocabulary of children, and yet we were uh, being forced to write in demisyllables. Uh, and I thought, uh, you know, if Ofsted had its way, uh, probably um, Neville Chamberlain would never have been allowed to use the word consequently when he announced uh, that we were at war with Germany. Uh, it really did worry me that uh, that really we were getting to the situation where, for some mad reason, people were assuming that parents couldn't manage this. Now, I worked in Liverpool for many years, uh, and the wealth and, and richness of language that people uh, from all parts of Liverpool use is famous for it. And it's not the only place. So uh, I thought I thought it was exceedingly insulting to turn around and say, "Well, parents won't understand that." Yes, yes. But we have got to the situation where words have, it, it's almost an Orwellian situation. But in in Liverpool, Frank and I inspected the school in Liverpool at the time when Ofsted had decided the word satisfactory wasn't good enough, so we would use the word sound. Yeah. And uh, we gave a feedback to a head teacher where virtually everything had come out of sound, which in other schools when everything was satisfactory, it wasn't a very good feedback and wasn't a very good report. And I said, so how do you feel about that? He said, the parents will love it. Sound around here means sound. <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, the, what's caught my eye this week, um, and it, it actually, and it's not all planned this, but uh, there were the two um, reports that came out for PE, well, three, PE, Geography and Music uh, from Ofsted this week, subject reviews. And I think what I feel, um, I'd be interested in what Alwyn thinks about this. Um, I'm, I, I, I don't think Ofsted should be a place for where colleagues go in and treat it as if it's like a university department. 
I think that Ofsted's at its best when it reports on the findings of its inspectors. And obviously, how you train up your inspectors and what you want them to focus in on, you know, that, that probably is a role for somebody, as there used to be, uh, an eminent sort of uh, colleague who would do that work, um, but wouldn't present it in such a way that it was uh, ideologically driven. It was really just presenting some of the evidence that had been found, you know, had been produced over the last few years from uh, academics. But actually, it was still left to inspectors to go and find out what the impact of all of this school work had been on the children. And that's where Ofsted's at its, I think, at its best. Um, what, what's so disappointing um, about these subject reports, reviews that have come out, is the emphasis that's been placed on academic research. So it's a list of academics uh, papers of which uh, in themselves are heavily selected you know there's a vast array of other reports that could have been drawn in but also the the schools are not listed so there's a, a bland statement at the end saying these schools have been chosen carefully so that they cover you know uh, the full re all the regions uh you know schools from sort of uh, challenging areas to less challenging areas, schools that were judged to be outstanding whatever but well, why not list them? Mm. And and these these uh, reviews are actually based on visits that have been made. So in effect, that is, you know, it, if you're going to make a visit and you're going to dig around for geography, for example, in a primary school, you know, you, you're going to see a lot more geography. You're going to find more geography, I hope, than you would if you did a two-day Section 5 inspection, you know. But so in a way, they're, they're not, I don't think they're really reflective of, of where reality is at the moment, because actually a lot of these schools are driven by going back again to these two subjects, you know. So why we have the commitment and we have these SATs at the end of Key Stage 2 that are driving the curriculum so heavily for many schools, you know, we need to break that. And then we go, I think, and do the geography deep dives or the geography visits because then there's time for that sort of work to take place. Um, so I feel as though the national curriculum, as you were, I, I think, what is it? it? It's not, it doesn't feel to me like the way it was meant, as it was conveyed at, at its launch, we are way off from what its intended um, uh, purpose was. And let's face it, Alwyn, we know colleagues, there are schools, even in those days, never taught geography. Mm never taught music you know it's not halcyon days you know the, the national no, was no, created no. to to give some at least a block of time where children would get music they would get pe because they weren't some of them weren't getting it that same school frank do you remember um design technology and they had just said no we don't do that <laughs> <laughs> and I, had a, I had a teacher at the school i went visited um and he, he was absolutely proud of the fact that the sink was never used because we don't do art. We don't <laughs> do any paint. We're never going to do that. So the, the, the caretaker, the cleaner, loved this this teacher. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was the tidiest classroom. There was no mess anywhere because it was just English and maths. That's all he did. You know. Um, you didn't tell me that when I came to No, well, I, actually, he wasn't. He'd gone by then. To oh, right. uh, I would say that. But, no, I, I, it, just going back to those times, Arwen, I think, that that curriculum award, it was the first time we'd really had to look at what we were trying to deliver here. And and I remember having a session where we brought some of the 
we've been doing some work with the local community and trying to strengthen that. And I remember we had a lunch and you, you I think, were in this library area and we mm. were, you know, and in a way we just stepped back and let the community talk to you about, yeah. you know, this is the impact of the school on our community. Yeah. Um, and, and in a way, the award itself, it was great. I think, I don't know whether everybody got the award, but the fact that those two years of effort were acknowledged by somebody like yourself made mm. us feel... You know, and we headed towards a really strong, really good Ofsted. But the Crystal Award was probably more important to the development of the school than the the Ofsted or some of the other stuff that came. Well, it it, it put the emphasis, didn't it, on 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 celebrating uh, the breadth of things that were happening. And there were many things to celebrate in, in your school. I remember it very, very well, and uh, it was a lovely experience. It it amazes me though. Um, how um, Ofsted particularly has gone round in circles. I didn't. I, I didn't always make myself popular, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> and I certainly didn't make myself popular when we started um, uh, revisiting the, the the curriculum, much as I supported the idea. Mm. But I remember um, in one uh, training session in London. Uh, the person leading it said, and of course, what uh, our most recent research has uh, discovered is that the schools with the widest curriculum are the ones which have the best results in English and maths. And I blurted out, which is exactly what HMI found in 1967, <laughs> which is which is the case because there was a report uh, which was published at that particular point, but and and she obviously thought I was just uh, having her on, but uh, it was it, it it worried me that we'd been through all that, all that work had been done, mm. uh, and had been done by subject experts, and then it had been uh, changed and um, diluted over the years and made into something which was far removed from people really thinking about it. And then as far as music was concerned, all kinds of people waded in so, because they did, couldn't see the difference between music education uh, for every child and instrumental uh, yes. music. Yeah. So if you asked anybody, they would immediately veer off to talking about instrumental music and that was dying and therefore um, it, uh, things were bad. And at the time, I used to write quite regularly for the Times Ed. Well, the Times Ed ran uh, a, a campaign to save music education. And I was writing in uh, quite regularly articles on music. And I would always take the opportunity to say we're in a very good position because for the first time since uh, compulsory education has come in, uh, every child in this country by law has to study music. It was always edited out. Uh, and to the point where I thought well, it was not uh, not worth writing uh, for them anymore. Uh, but uh, we've we've had this strange situation, and then, of course, as far as music is concerned, again people began to play uh, play games with with numbers. So suddenly, every child in this country is having the opportunity to play a musical instrument. That's sort of nonsense. Mm. They 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 have the opportunity to have an instrument somewhere near them uh, for a year at the most. Yes. Uh, and then the instrument, unless somebody's actually got some really well-planned ways of building on that, 
the child finishes. I remember saying to a, a head in, in one authority when I was inspecting new opportunities, I said, uh, he hadn't got any means of helping uh, children whose parents couldn't afford it. And I said, well, which is better that the child should have been shown that he can play the trombone, but it's taken away from him. Is that better than never having put him anywhere near the trombone, which he now knows he could play, but it's prevented from doing so by circumstances. So we've messed around such a lot uh, with these things, but the fact that it's been allowed to happen uh, means that really um, we're not, we haven't been in earnest about a wide curriculum. Well, that's over 40 minutes of a chat. It's amazing <laughs> how it goes, isn't it? So, uh, uh, yeah, it's been really interesting, Owen. I think it, 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 you brought sort of, obviously, that wealth of experience has really flowed through the conversation today. Um, it's made me think also about some of the comments I've made about uh, her teachers leading inspections. So, uh, and again, you know, that's really helpful that somebody, you weren't aware how challenging you'd been to some views that I held. So, Thank you for that and for challenging my views in a sensitive manner. So, uh, me uh, sensitive? Yeah. And I, just, I think it might have been different if he'd known your views in advance and been a <laughs> 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 No, I've taken no notice. No. Uh, uh, and again, you know, thank you for giving us your time and uh, all being well. Uh, Frank and Stan will be back uh, next Friday. Uh, and just one thing we've got um, another spotlight uh, conversation on. Uh, next week which we're going to do about workload um where we had a colleague came on and uh, from an independent sector and they look as though they're really trying to get to grips with uh, flexible working and things like that so we'll include that and uh, it's still not too late to get hold of the spotlight conversation we had with the governor from Cavisham primary school uh or parent from Cavisham primary school which uh, has uh, had a lot of a lot of views over the last week or so. So uh, you can get that on the Frankenstein chat as well. Okay. We'll see you all next week. So thank you very much, Alan. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. <laughs>